Hey y'all, and welcome to the region of the Middle East and North Africa. Or in Arabic, Assalamu alaikum wa marhaban bikum fi mintaqat al-sharq al-awsati wa shimal Afrika. Hope that wasn't too bad. Welcome to Dr. Z's A World Never Mentioned podcast. For those of you who are new to this, my name is Zion, or otherwise would like to be referred to as Dr. Z. I'm a rising junior at Poolsville High School, and I live in the city of Clarksburg in Maryland. The goal of my podcast is to engage my listeners about different regions around the world by immersing them with the history, politics, and culture. As we all know, our world is a melting pot of different cultures and people. Sometimes, with the sensationalist media and politics influencing our mindsets, these true stories are being lost, and I want to bring them back to the spotlight. My first podcast was about the region of Latin America, and if you're interested, please do check them out. Also, since I'm recording this during COVID-19, I'd like to acknowledge that I know it's a really hard time for many of us, and I hope you guys are all staying safe and sane. And I would especially like to take a moment to send my warm thoughts and appreciation to all the frontline workers for your commitment to caring for our community. Now, let's dive back into our podcast. This is our third episode, and I'm excited to explore with you the rich, hot and humid Middle East and North Africa region, which is at the crossroads of three continents, Europe, Asia, and Africa. Also, just last week, a catastrophic explosion occurred in Beirut, Lebanon, with many people injured and losing lives. I offer my deepest condolences to those who lost a loved one, and I will be covering that later in this episode. Now, my mom was raised entirely in the Middle East, specifically Dubai and UAE, and my grandparents, as well as a lot of my other relatives, have lived in UAE, Oman, Saudi Arabia, and Qatar. So the region is, in fact, very close to my heart, and I've been blessed to witness the ethnic and cultural diversity of the population of the Middle East, from the nomadic lifestyles in the desert to the increasingly urban lifestyle, with the densest collection of skyscrapers and huge businesses and malls. While the reality has been distorted by media today, with focus on the negative aspects of this region, for example, terrorism, civil wars, and corruption, it's important to note that the Middle East and North Africa region is not one dangerous country when composed of 20 different ones that differ massively from each other. They have boundaries and share borders. So what are we waiting for? Let's swim through the Mediterranean Sea and discover the wonders this mysterious region of the Middle East and North Africa has in store for us. Before we get into the history and politics of the region, we really need to understand the differences between Sunni and Shia Muslims. We hear these two sects of Islam extremely often when it comes to conflicts that arise in the Middle East, which we will be discussing later in today's episode. However, it should be noted that these two religions aren't exactly diametrically opposed, and the main issues are actually not due to religious differences, but for power. The main religious difference between Sunni and Shia, however, is that after Prophet Muhammad died in 632 CE, the Muslim community split into two groups. 
The Sunnis believe that the next leader of the Muslim community should be given to its members, while the Shia believe that the leadership should be inherited and given to Muhammad's son-in-law. Ever since then, the conflict has only grown worse. In the world with 1.8 billion Muslims, 85% identify as Sunni, while 15% identify as Shia. There are more similarities between the two religions than differences. They both read the holy book, the Quran, and believe that whatever is written is the indisputable laws of Allah and his plans for humanity. Additionally, both religions follow the five pillars of Islam, which include performing charitable actions, believing the one and only God, praying five times a day, fasting during the holy month of Ramadan, and performing Hajj, which is a pilgrimage to Mecca at least you should make once in your lifetime if you can afford it. However, this division that happened centuries ago is very meaningful to some people in both religions, and when they coexist in one country, conflicts do occur. But I'm not really saying that Sunnis and Shias hate each other, I mean, that's completely false. There are many countries where they coexist peacefully, but these two groups' historical differences are the root causes for many militant terrorist groups to form, and so as the same for oppressive governments that are still existing today. However, just because you're Sunni or Shia doesn't make you part of the extremism that goes on today, especially since the violent nature of these groups are not condoned in Islamic beliefs. Also, I wanted to talk to you guys about what has recently happened in Lebanon. The explosion that happened in Lebanon is what some people would consider their 9-11 of their country. It happened in Beirut, the capital of Lebanon, and is considered as the Paris of the Middle East, with the amazing nightlife and beaches and modern culture in the city. It's home to 2 million people. So what exactly caused this explosion? Well, inside the epicenter of Beirut were 300 tons of fertilizer ammonium nitrate that wasn't really safely stored. And when they exploded, a whole mushroom cloud was created. And as the explosion happened, it felt like an earthquake that was rippling miles away. 200 people were killed and 5,000 were injured. With the explosion, the government resigned as they thought that the country had become too corrupt and anti-government protests had become extremely violent. I mean, just, just think about it. Many buildings and Lebanon's grains that boosted their economy were completely destroyed. So yeah, it's been quite an unfortunate journey for the Lebanon, Lebanese people these past couple of weeks. And again, my condolences for those who lost their lives, and please donate to Lebanon if you can. So this time, I decided to combine history and politics, instead of going into an in-depth historical analysis from the ancient times, since there are just so many civilizations and empires to discuss, I will just be talking about the major events that happened from the 20th century onwards, which had a huge major impact on the Middle East's geopolitical influence today. Now. This will be a very controversial segment in this episode. I mean, after all, the Middle East does seem to be the media's favorite topic. But 
I will try my best to stay as unbiased as possible. Before I go into the brief history, when it comes to the Middle East, factors that exacerbate these issues include the country's partitions after World War I, the Israel-Palestine conflict, the obvious rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran, and the intervention of foreign powers, especially the United States. First, let's talk about how the Middle East was divided after World War I. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the Middle East was divided between Britain and France in terms of control according to their interests rather than to the interests of the diverse group of people in the region. After World War II, the Western powers couldn't continue their imperialist agenda and left the region leaving the borders the way they were, with people and their completely different beliefs living in the same country. There were also some ethnic groups like the Kurds with no region at all. So just keep this in mind as you observe the civil wars I discussed later in the segment. Next, we have the Israel-Palestine conflict. Though both Jews and Arab Muslims date their claims to the land back a couple thousand years, the current political conflict began in the early 20th century. The area being discussed here is just east of the Mediterranean Sea. When Britain had control of the Middle East, the small region was known as the British Mandate of Palestine. However, after the Holocaust and with the support of the United Nations, Israel was founded in 1948, as the Zionist movement gained popularity. Zionism is the movement that establishes a Jewish state in the ancestral homeland, and guess where that was? You got it, in Palestine. This movement caused a mass immigration of Jews to move into the region, which of course caused tensions between these Arabs and Jews. However, many countries supported the Jews after the unfortunate losses they have been through under Hitler's Nazi regime in World War II. After Israel was founded and Palestine being split into two different regions under the UN's plan, the neighboring Arab countries fought and tried to invade Israel. But not only did Israel strike back at these armies, but they expanded their territory even further. Hundreds of thousands of Palestinians were forced to flee into other countries or in small, the small Palestinian territory. Many Western countries support Israel, as they feel that they have the moral obligation to do so, after the horrors of the Holocaust and the fact that there was no Jewish ancestral homeland or nation before. They also support Israel as they're one of the only countries in the region that is fully democratic and also has nuclear weapons. The Israelis are also occupying some of Palestine's current land, which is another source of tension in the small region. So this is where the debate originates. Does Israel have the right to this land because of their unfortunate past and Zionist movement, or should Palestine remain as it was their region first at their time after World War I and shouldn't be forced to leave their homes? On the news, we would see humanitarian crises in Yemen and Syria, with many people at near starvation due to violence between extremist groups in the regions. A factor that exacerbates these problems is the regional rivalry between Saudi Arabia and Iran. In the 1900s, with Saudi Arabia's massive wealth from oil, they've tried to spread Sunni Islam 
and establish influence around the region. However, after Iran's huge revolution with Khomeini in charge and creating a religious theocracy, the two countries have been competing for dominance in the Middle East. Although the two countries haven't exactly gone to war directly, they fight indirectly, using proxy groups in different countries, especially Yemen and Syria. The two countries would help militant groups by aiding them with money and weapons which further fuel the deadly conflicts in the region. Another cause of these issues are from the concept that I explained earlier in this podcast, Sunni versus Shia Islam. Saudi Arabia supports Sunni Islam, while Iran heavily supports Shia Islam. Usually for centuries, Sunni and Shia Muslims were able to live together peacefully in a country, until the civil war in Iraq under Saddam Hussein's regime. Ever since Saudi Arabia and Iran tried to influence countries by providing resources to either Sunni or Shia governments and extremist groups. Therefore, although religion does play a minor role in these conflicts, it's actually mainly for control from these two Middle Eastern superpowers. Now that we've gone over these prerequisites, Let's go over an extremely brief history. After years of rule, from a series of empires like the Assyrian to the Sassanid empires, and from the Rashidun and Umayyad caliphates to the Ottoman Empire, the Middle East has had a lot that has happened in its past. I mean, it was the birthplace of the three Abrahamic religions that billions of us practice. After the two great world wars, the Middle East has had quite an eventful past few decades. Let's start with the Iranian Revolution in 1979. After one prime minister was ousted by coups from the US and UK, and then Mohammad Reza Shah was abhorred by his citizens, the Ayatollahs became the leaders of Iran. They held huge stances. They were against the United States refused to recognize Israel and its Zionist movement, and completely denounced Saudi Arabia's absolute monarchy. Ayatollah Khomeini further spread the idea of Shia Islam in the region and Iran became more powerful. Next, we have the Iran-Iraq War, the year which lasted for eight years. Saddam Hussein, in order to prevent a rebellion against him in his own country, saw this perfect opportunity to annex some of Iran's oil-rich regions during the chaos of the revolution. With Saudi Arabia and the US backing Iraq reluctantly due to Iran's bold stances, the war between the two countries lasted for eight years with absolutely no border changes. So yeah, pretty whack. Two years later, we have the Gulf War where after Iraq tried to take oil from Iran, the same happened with Kuwait, scaring both Saudi Arabia and the US with how unexpected the attacks were, the two countries called their allies and pushed Iraq back from Kuwait. Ever since, the US has provided military backup to protect its interests in the Middle East and its relationship with Saudi Arabia. In 2001, the 9-11 attacks occurred, where Al-Qaeda, a terrorist group crashed two passenger airlines into the Twin Towers and the Pentagon. The reasoning for the attacks, according to the leader, was due to the U.S.'s support of Israel, military presence in Saudi Arabia, and sanctions against Iraq. 
In 2003, we have the U.S. invasion of Iraq, where the U.S. accused the country of promoting terrorism and possessing weapons of mass destruction. The U.S. invaded Iraq to overthrow Saddam Hussein from power. America, which was still suffering from the 9-11 attack, were convinced that this invasion was a part of a fight against terrorism, although there was no link between the Iraqi government and Al-Qaeda. But guess what? Turns out there were no weapons of mass destruction in the country, and going into the war with Iraq started to become highly criticized. Civil war broke out in Iraq, and the U.S. had to control it until the government was considered stable in 2011 for the U.S. to leave. In 2010, the Arab Springs occurred, where pro-democracy protests spread around the Arab world. This led to the toppling of regimes in Tunisia, Libya, Yemen, and Egypt. However, in Syria, these protests became a bit violent, and the protesters took up arms. This made Syria embroiled in a civil war. With the civil war and extremism going on in the neighboring nation Iraq, the extremist group, the Islamic State, spread into Syria as well. Their mission was to establish a worldwide caliphate and become known as ISIS or ISIL. The US and other foreign powers intervened again and minimized the extremist group. However, as more and more groups joined the rebels against Syria, Syria's dictatorship, it became hard for these foreign powers to continue supporting them. Similar things were also happening in Yemen. Coming to our favorite segment of this podcast, we go into the oil-rich, desert-filled, Islamic-driven area and understand their people. First of all, those of you who think all Arab countries are the same, 100% false. You may think that everyone in the region is Arab, but there are actually many other ethnic groups, including Kurds, Berbers, Azeris, Nubians, Turks, Jews, and of course, the Persians. Even the countries who speak Arabic have different dialects. For example, the Maghreb region in Northwest Africa all speak a different dialect of Arabic compared to the countries in the Gulf region, which would consist of Oman, UAE, Qatar, and Kuwait. Although many may think that some of these people from the region are a bit arrogant or have a tood, that is completely false in many cases, and they're actually the most generous. You literally cannot leave an Arab or Middle Eastern's house without having your stomach full with pita bread, tender meat, and salad on the side. Just like how we discussed about Latin America, these countries, especially in North Africa, are absolutely crazy about soccer. Even when driving around the Cornishes in UAE and Qatar, I always see kids in their Barcelona or Chelsea jerseys just juggling a ball. As a matter of fact, it's important to mention that Qatar will also be hosting the next FIFA World Cup in 2022, which is definitely a huge deal. Additionally, the region is the birthplace of all three Abrahamic religions. And let me emphasize this. All Arabs are not Muslim, and all Muslims are not Arab. In the region, there are many Jews and Christians concentrated in countries like Israel and Lebanon, and Muslims are spread out literally throughout the world, like for example in Southeast Asia and in Eastern Europe.
Now, let's dive deep into the culture. Let's start with the Middle East. And let's actually begin with our, my favorite segment, the food segment. Now, the common Middle Eastern dishes include hummus, which is the big daddy chickpea spread that can be put literally on anything, especially bread. There's manakish, the pizza of the Arabic world. And it's a, bre- it's a round bread sprinkled with either cheese, ground meat, and herbs, which is also known as zathar. Now, all of you guys know this one, the ultimate that small ball of very subtle flavors you have falafel, which is fried chickpeas with herbs, and it's just simply a great snack. My personal favorite, and the one I'll always get in any halal cart, is shawarma, which, is, which are tender bits of skewered chicken, garlic puree, and salad, all wrapped in a pita bread. I'm telling you, it's an explosion of flavors each bite. My first time I ever had this was in New York, and it was absolutely insane. Then you have fatouche, which is a tangy salad, baba ganoush, which is an eggplant dip, tabule, which is a magical combination of bulgur, parsley, mint, onion, and tomatoes. You have kofta, which are these balls of minced lamb or beef, or beef. and they have the spicy onion um, kick. And you have kenafe, a delicious cheesecake that uses nabusi cheese. Now, when it comes to dishes specific to a country, you have kibbe, a unique mixture of soaked bulgur wheat and other ingredients, which are typically lamb meat. And this one kind of originates from Lebanon and Syria. In Saudi Arabia, you have gabsa, a mixed rice dish that is made with meat and vegetables. And it's many traditional regional dishes use similar ingredients of lamb, yogurt, rice, and potatoes. So for my Indians out there, it's like a varied version of the biryani that we all love. Then you have shua in Oman, which is a lamb roast that's roasted underground and then wrapped in a banana leaf for a day. And it's just that nice, fresh, you know, a little bit of a spicy flavor there, especially from the uh, being roasted underground. You have metbus, which is a rice and meat dish again, but this one is mainly more common in Qatar, Kuwait, and Bahrain. In Iran, you have the cello kebab. And just for your information, um, kebabs are extremely, it's like another common dish in the Middle East. So this one is usually also side with Persian saffron rice, and then there's a juicy cello kebab. In um, Iraq, you have meskouf, which is a Mesopotamian dish consisting of seasoned grilled carp, And you have baklava, a layered pastry that is filled with nuts and covered in syrup and ground pistachios, which is mainly in Turkey. Moving on, we have the places to visit. Let's start with Iran. In Iran, you have jaw-dropping architecture, which can be witnessed in cities like Esfahan and Tehran, which is the capital. In Syria, you have the city of Damascus, which is actually one of the most ancient cities in the world and houses the Umayyad Mosque. In Mecca, Saudi Arabia, which is basically the capital of Islam, you can see the different masjids such as Masjid al-Haram, and even more importantly, the Kaaba, where Muslims make pilgrimages to, and which is actually one of the pillars of Islam. In Yemen, you gotta visit the old city of Sana'a, the capital, and be awe-inspired by the sights. Almost every single place in the city is historically significant. In Oman, 
If there's one place you're probably visiting there, it's the capital Muscat. This city is home to forts, palaces, museums, and markets, offering something for everyone. Oman is also a spectacular place for adventurous people who love to trek or hike or do safaris. Now we come to the UAE. When everyone thinks about the UAE, you already know that they're thinking about Dubai and Abu Dhabi. The UAE definitely played its cards right by going from this rural desert to this great urban area with many spectacles, such as the Burj Khalifa, Burj Al Arab, the Palm, the Dubai Mall, and so much more. I don't know anyone who doesn't want to travel to the UAE, and more specifically, the city of Dubai. Next, we move on to Qatar. Now, in my opinion, Doha seems to be like the second Dubai in the Middle East Gulf region, with its Cornish and Souq Waqif, and its museums and many more. It's also very urban and rich, like just like its neighboring countries. There's Bahrain. Now, Bahrain is extremely, extremely underrated in my opinion. Like the country knows it's rich, but no one else does. If you search it up, you see these absolutely beautiful skyscrapers, and it's definitely a bustling city. It's somewhat similar to Qatar and UAE. It's again a Gulf country. If you're going there, you definitely have to visit the Bahrain Fort, the Pearl Monument, and Qalat Al Bahrain. Next up, Kuwait. Again, another country in the Gulf region that's extremely rich. That too, very secretly. Kuwait City is somewhat again like a low-key Dubai or Doha, and the spectacles in this country include the Kuwait Towers and the Grand Mosque, which, as a Muslim, is probably one of the most stunning mosques I've ever witnessed. In Turkey, you have its capital Ankara, which boasts a lively art and cultural scene with a large concentration of theaters and museums. And of course, how can I go about talking about Turkey without talking about Istanbul? The old city is where the most where most of the city's impressive historic sites are found, which include the Hagia Sophia, the Blue Mosque, and the Top Kapi Palace. Another important district is actually the new city. Known for its modern-day attractions, skyscrapers, and shopping malls. In Jordan, you have Petra, which is a rock-cut city and a huge archaeological site in Jordan's southwestern desert, and also the capital city of Amman, a great place to walk around. In Lebanon, like I said, Beirut. Despite the explosion, Beirut is probably, in my opinion, my most desirable destination in the Middle East. You have the nightlife, the ruins, the caves, and the wild parties, all in just one place. If you're a party animal, Beirut's definitely the place for you. In Israel, the two most prevalent cities are definitely Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. With Jerusalem being like this great historical place with a lot of religious context, yet again, the city is important to all three Abrahamic religions. There's the Dome of the Rock in the city as well. And with Tel Aviv, you have the more modernness with the views and the cafes. When it comes to traditions, let me start by reminding you that most countries go by the Muslim holidays, which consist of two Eids and then the lunar calendar month of Ramadan, where Muslims go without food and water every day from sunrise to sunset. The first Eid, Eid al-Fitr, is celebrated to mark the end of the month of Ramadan, while the second Eid, or also known as the Big Eid, Eid al-Adha. Is celebrated when the Islamic prophet Ibrahim sacrificed his own son due to his obedience to God. Other than the Muslim holidays that are celebrated heavily in the Middle East, in Israel, a lot of Jewish holidays are celebrated, 
like Shabbat, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then even Christian holidays like Christmas. Honestly, all these holidays are celebrated to a great extent because, you know, this is where all the religions sort of started in a way. After the Middle East, we have the North Africa or the Maghreb region, which actually means West in Arabic. These people are a little different compared to those in the Middle East countries. Due to their history, most of the countries in the region have a little bit of a French influence in their culture, while for Libya, it would be Italian. Let's start with discussing Algeria. When I was talking about the soccer fanatics in the region, the biggest concentration of them would be in Algeria and Egypt. They have a huge rivalry. Berbers are the indigenous race of Algeria, living primarily in the mountainous region in the east of Algiers. Many Berbers are fighting for the autonomous and cultural independence of the Kabylie region of Algeria. Coming to food, how could we possibly talk about the Maghreb region without bringing up couscous? It's extremely simple and fresh, and the dish is composed of small pellets of steamed semolina topped with meat, vegetables, and various spices. This is also a very popular dish from Libya as well. Additionally, from Algeria, you have the very common breakfast item shakshuka, which is a dish with sautéed onions, tomatoes, and various spices topped with a few eggs. And then we have hariri, a lamb soup. Moving up north from Algeria on the northern coast of the continent nearing Spain, you have Tunisia. Something interesting about Tunisia is that there are all male cafes or cafes for women and men. Now this may be confusing for women in the western world, but the culture is quite conservative. In the all-male cafes, you will be seeing men smoking shisha and playing cards. The Tunisian diet is extremely heavy in carbs and sugary delights. Bread accompanies almost every meal, and you're likely to find potatoes, couscous, and sandwiches with french fries on the menu. Authentic Tunisian cuisine can be found in traditional restaurants, with dishes such as brique, a delicious pastry dough stuffed with eggs, parsley, and tuna, or fricasse, a savory donut stuffed with tuna, boiled egg, olives, and harissa. By the way, Tunisians add harissa, which is a fiery peppery sauce, to almost everything. You'll also find delicious sweet treats in cafes and restaurants when it's time for dessert. Moving westward, you got the more Berber culture in, in Morocco. Now, as we discussed in the Latin America episode about how the Chilean accent is almost incomprehensible to most Spanish speakers, it's the same case for Morocco and Arabic. Moroccans are a very welcoming and tolerant people towards different cultures, ideas, and ways of life. The Moroccan national dish is tagine, which is cooked in a tagine pot where slow-cooked savory stews are made with meat, poultry, or fish, are cooked with vegetables, aromatic spices, dried fruit, and nuts. Overall, popular beverages in the Maghreb region include Maghrebi minti and mazagran, which is a very strong iced coffee. Additionally, other popular dishes in the region include misemmen, a flatbread with flour, semolina, sugar, salt, yeast, warm water, oil, and clarified butter, and pastilla, 
which is a savory meat pie. Now away from the Maghreb region, we go into another country in North Africa. You all know it, Egypt. Of course, many of us know the country for its pyramids, mummies, tombs, blah blah blah. But let's actually understand the Egyptian people. Egyptians are also quite very open-minded and, again, as I discussed in the previous episode, have a very collectivist culture, just like most of these other Middle Eastern North African countries, meaning they place a lot of importance on family. Famous food from Egypt include gusheti, a mix of rice, spaghetti, small round macaroni, vermicelli, fried onions, black lentils, and hummus topped with a thick tomato sauce, garlic, and vinegar sauce, and then chili sauce put together in some kind of art. Yeah, pretty detailed. (laughs) That mix may sound strange, but it's totally worth a try. There's also tamaya, which is this Egyptian falafel which is eaten with fava beans, which are known as ful in Arabic. In my opinion, when it comes to the tourist sites in North Africa, Everything is completely underrated, like everything. Starting off in Morocco, the whole country is just filled with cities of both modern and ancient culture. For example, Rabat, the capital city, Casablanca, Marrakech, and Fis. When you're in these cities to truly experience the Moroccan vibe, you gotta check out their souks. By the way, do that in almost every country you definitely experience that really traditional culture in these nations. It's considered by many an assault to the senses because everything is so vibrant and you can smell all the flavorful Moroccan dishes. You should also see the blue village of Shafshawan, visit the mosques, and enjoy your interaction with the locals. And you know what? You should actually be doing that with every country as well. Perhaps the most iconic of Egypt's ancient sites are the pyramids of Giza and are located just outside of Cairo. Comprising three different pyramid complexes, the site is one of the original seven wonders of the world. In Libya, Leptis Magna, to the east of Tripoli on the Mediterranean coast, is one of the best preserved of all Roman cities. Originally, it was a Berber settlement, then held by the Carthaginians before falling to Rome following the Punic Wars. In Tunisia, you have the El Gem Amphitheater, the beach in Jerba, and the ruins in Carthage, which is near the country's capital. In Algeria, you can witness the natural beauty and architecture in the country's capital, Algiers. Now, when it comes to traditions, of course, almost all of these countries celebrate Ramadan and the two Eids. Countries in North Africa celebrate the Amazigh New Year, due to the prevalent Amazigh culture in the region. This is especially the case in Morocco and Algeria. The Amazigh New Year is celebrated in January. Tagola and couscous is prepared, and people have taken to the streets to dance, serve traditional food, play traditional music, and share happy moments. So, This concludes our part one segment on the Middle East and North Africa region. Be sure to tune in to our next segment, which includes an interesting interview with our special guest speaker from the Middle East. So until next time, this is Dr. Z signing off with the quote, live life by a compass, not by a clock. Or in Arabic,